just before we uh, get to the Word of God, I want to just take a minute and uh, ask all of you uh, for your forgiveness. I made a comment last Sunday when I was preaching, and it was really flippant, and it was uncaring, and it was uncalled for, and I hope you can forgive me. As Lauren was saying uh, during the call to worship last week, I was preaching on Thomas and how Thomas had doubted, and then I invited uh, all of us to consider the ways in which we doubt. And uh, not that we necessarily doubt the resurrection, but we, we doubt the goodness of God in so many ways. As Christians, we struggle with doubt. And as I was inviting us to consider during the difficult days of this pandemic um, how we doubt, I was sharing some of the ways that my doubt manifests with worry or anger or frustration uh, or trying to navigate um, uh, the varying views on the pandemic and the response and, and how to walk through all of that. And so I, what I said uh, very foolishly was I said to you, I said, I love you guys. And sometimes you tick me off. Um, I regret saying that big time. And I hope you can forgive me because uh, as uh, we are in this uh, lockdown right now, which is tremendously frustrating and, and grieving for a lot of people, including some of us here in this church, you may feel like you need some support and prayer and encouragement. And you may feel like you need uh, to contact me to be your priest so you can sit and vent and cry. And I want you to know that I care about you and I want you to uh, feel like you can do that. And I hope that when I made that uh, uh, terribly selfish comment, couched in humor, and there's nothing funny about it, um, I hope you can forgive me for that so that you can feel like you can reach out and that you, it would be met with care and not uh, frustration and anger um, from your pastor. So I am sorry. Um, please forgive me. Um, segue. <laughs> In a great contradiction to the predictably dismal news that we all got this week, let's turn to some very, very good news. Uh, Our text for today is John 21. But before I read it, um, John 21 is very interesting because it it is like a post-credit scene. You know, when you go to the movies and there's a post-credit scene, there's like this excitement that hits the audience like, oh, the the story continues. Um, 1966, James Bond was the first film that did a post-credit scene. Uh, 1986, some of us remember watching Ferris Bueller in his uh, robe, brushing his teeth. And after the credits were all over, he told everybody in the theater to go home. And we were like, whoa, we broke the fourth wall. Uh, 2008, Iron Man, uh, Marvel uh, gives us a post-credit scene. And then in all 96 movies that followed <laughs> that, they've been giving us post-credit scenes. But the, the, John 21 is a little bit like a post-resurrection scene because this is how John chapter 20 ends. I'm going to read how it ends. Now, Jesus did many other things in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in his name, you may have life in him. End scene. Fade to black. Definitive. Conclusive. It sounds like the book is going to end. But then we get this, our text for today, John chapter 21, verses 1 to 14. After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. And in this way, he showed himself. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathanael of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were gathered together. And Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, well, we're going with you also. So immediately they went out, they got into the boat, and at night they caught nothing. 
But when the morning had now come, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, Children, have any food? And they answered to him, No. And he said to them, Cast the net on the other side of the boat, and there you will find some. And so they cast, and now they were not able to draw it in because of the multitude of fish. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It's the Lord. Now, when Simon Peter heard it, that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he had removed it, and he plunged into the sea. But the other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from land, about 200 cubits, and they dragged the net with the fish. And as soon as they had come to land, they saw this fire of coals there, and fish laid on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish which you've just caught. And Simon Peter went up and he dragged the net to land full of large fish, 153. And although there were so many, the net was not broken. And Jesus said to them, come and eat breakfast. Yet none of the disciples dared ask, who are you? Knowing that it was the Lord. And Jesus came and he took the bread and he gave it to them and likewise the fish. Now this is the third time Jesus showed himself to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. And when they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time Jesus said to Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved. Because Jesus asked him a third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. This is God's word. Uh, This morning, I want us to think about three things uh, from this passage. Uh, And they're this, that the same Jesus who filled those nets, he fills his church and he fills our souls. He fills our hearts. Um, this post-resurrection you know, scene, it foreshadows that the ministry of Jesus, it's going to continue. You pick that up in the book of Acts as Jesus' earthly ministry is, is over, but his heavenly ministry continues uh, by and through the power of the Holy Spirit, the person of the Holy Spirit all through the book of Acts. So in verse three, Peter says he's going fishing and Peter's a pro. He's done this his whole life. He's a fisherman. He knows exactly what he's doing. This is his life's work. And uh, we don't want to read too deeply into why he's doing it because it could have, the text doesn't give us any reasons for his motivation and it could have been just as simply as he needed some food and this is how you make money and uh, simple as that. So the bottom line is he's going, he's going fishing and this is really the one thing that Peter can do all on his own and have success until Jesus decides to do some healing. And then the one thing that Peter can do all on his own and have some set success uh, he can't have any success. And providentially, Jesus causes this. It's interesting to me in verse five, there's this term of endearment. He calls them kids. He calls them children. Uh, we know the text tells us 200 cubits from shore. That's about 100 yards. So imagine you're standing in the end zone of a football field and 100 yards away is the other end zone. And that's how far away Peter is. So you're probably not going to recognize anybody 100 yards away. Um, you know, in the ancient world, your clothing <laughs> styles were probably not that unique. So everybody 100 yards away probably looked pretty similar. And uh, so Jesus calls out with this, um, this term of endearment. And he's like, hey, kids, hey, loved ones. We don't talk that way. Because if, if you talk that way now, it's like it's patronizing. But in this culture, he's like, hey, hey, loved ones, hey, hey little ones, children. The Greek word is paideia. 
hey, Paidea, do you have any fish? And um, they just give the one word answer. They're like, nope, they don't even want to talk about it. Um, they're like, they're consummate uh, professional fishermen and they don't want to talk about it. So they're like, no. Jesus says to cast the nets on the other side, which of course is, um, you know, mathematically, it, it's kind of ridiculous because they weren't massive fishing barges. Um, you can go to a museum in uh, Kibbutz Gnotsar today and you can find a first century uh, fishing boat um, that was similar to the one that they used and it's seven and a half feet wide. So to go to all the backbreaking labor of gathering up these salty, you know, heavy nets and then sort of shuffle seven and a half feet, like, you know, when you get out of your uh, shower and you forget the towel and you stand on the bath mat and you shuffle across the bathroom floor. So, you know, they kind of do this and then plop the nets on the other side. This doesn't make any sense. So I, I think this is kind of like the first miracle is that they did it. And then the second miracle is that they caught the fish. And uh, so we see all of this. And what is going on? And the reason I'm just taking a moment to mention this is uh, because they've been in this situation before. They've received this command before. Um, and there was a shocking, miraculous uh, experience that they had before. So I'm going to touch on that in just a second. But just very briefly, for those of you who've been joining us and you're, um, you've not yet uh, placed your faith in Jesus, but you're very curious about Jesus, um, sometimes... Uh, Critics of the Bible will say these were stories about a great guy and they were exaggerated over time. And you can't believe these miracles. And uh, they were just sort of, they, he grew into a legend over time. And uh, what I'd encourage you to consider, uh, two things. Um, the first thing is that, is that uh, there's a lot of detail here. 153 f uh, fish, 200 cubits from shore, Peter didn't have his coat on because he took it off, but then he put it on and then he jumps in the water. That's not, from, from a, a historical literary point of view, if you're, a, if you're a critic of literature, of ancient literature, that's not how you write poetry. You don't put that kind of detail into mythology. Um, today we do that. When we write fiction today, we want it to be realistic fiction, so we put detail in. But it, if you just look at um, comparative works of ancient literature, they don't put that kind of detail in. That's not how you write poetry. That's how eyewitnesses record history. So I just want you to consider, there's lots more that could be said. I'm not going to get into it. If you'd like to have a chat, I'd be happy to have a, co a coffee with you to talk about why um, the Bible is, is uh, reliable as it relates to these things. So that's the first thing. There's a lot of detail that doesn't fit the genre of poetry. That's the genre of eyewitness history. But the second thing I want you to consider real quick is that um, all of the first century critics of Jesus, uh, Rome, um, uh, the the religious leaders that didn't believe he was the Christ. Nobody denies the miracles. There's no writings of anybody denying the miracles. What they do is they explain them away. He was a sorcerer. He was using magic. He was possessed by the devil. So nobody's, there's nobody writing and saying that these amazing miracles of Jesus never happened. They just try and explain away the sort of mystical reasons how they happened. So that I, again, that's just something I think for you to consider that, um, you don't need to abandon your reason to believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Anyways, let's move on. So the disciples, um, they're in this situation before where they're told to cast their nets on the other side and they get this huge catch. You could read about that in Luke 5. But, uh, you know, the first time this happened, Jesus was right there with them in the boat. Now it's happening and he's 100 yards away. But the first time this happened, you know, Peter is in the presence of Christ's power and he wants to get away from Jesus. 
The first time this happened, he's in the presence of Christ's power and he says, get away from me, I'm a sinful man. But the second time that it happens here, the story we just read, Peter doesn't want to get away from Jesus. He wants to swim to Jesus. What is going on here? This is really um, a powerful picture of how the gospel changes everything. Uh, Because the first time Jesus performed this miracle, he hadn't yet gone to the cross. And Peter is totally ashamed of his sin. But the second time that it happens right here, this is actually after Christ had gone to the cross, after he had risen from the grave, which means that Peter is absolved of all of his sin. And if you think about Jesus as nothing more than an example for you to follow, uh, you're probably not going to want to be around him. Because his perfection, his perfect love and generosity and mercy and justice, it will be a constant reminder of your sin. And you will be like Peter the first time you encounter Christ's power and you'll be like, get away from me. I don't want to be near you. But if Jesus is not primarily your example, if Jesus is primarily your savior, who is now a glorious example, you won't want to hide from him. You'll want to swim to him. Because his perfection is not a condemning reminder of your sin. His perfection has actually absolved you of all your sin. And so you'll want to swim to Jesus. You won't want to hide from him. And, you know, notice this is like a live action parable that's going on here. Um, The disciples can't do anything. Jesus is doing everything. They worked and worked and worked all night. And despite all of their best work, they're empty and in need. Jesus shows up and by grace alone, he gives them what they need. This is like a masterful object lesson. Normally Jesus was like teaching and the disciples were like sitting, listening to the parable. Now they're like active participants in this real life action parable. It's amazing Um, because we know that the New Testament teaches us repeatedly um, that we're not accepted and adopted by, uh, by God on the basis of all of our hard work. We are accepted on the basis of receiving Christ's grace. And so we see this amazing miracle and we, we think about how it brings to life some of the other things that Jesus said. You know, way back in John 12, if you were to back up a handful of chapters, Jesus made a comment. He said, if I am lifted up, speaking of his resurrection, if I am lifted up, I will draw men to me. And he uses this drawing word. It's this very, this very uh, descriptive word of drawing, like you draw in nets. And, you know, use the metaphor of, I'm going to make you fishers of men, this drawing metaphor. When you think about it, there's a lot of power here because um, the Greek word for draw or to haul, Jesus says, if I'm lifted up, I'll haul everybody to me. Um, It's not just, uh, you know, inducing something to come toward you. That's one meaning of the word, like you pull in nets. But the other meaning of the word is that there's like an attractive power that is drawing you in the same way that you are physically, emotionally, psychologically sort of drawn to things that are attractive to you, um, that are enticing to you and, and, or encouraging and beautiful to you. You're drawn to these things. And so Jesus says, I'll draw men to me. So here he's drawing nets. He's getting us to consider his power. Um, you know, in other words, it's like all of this is, in, I think, inviting us to consider that Jesus is really the only one who's capable of doing the heavy lifting in salvation. Right? He's called his disciples to share the gospel, just like by extension, uh, you and I, as his disciples, we are called to share the gospel. But just as Christ filled these nets by his power, he continues to fill his church 
by his power. He continues to fill our hearts and our souls by his power. And, uh, you know, I have some exciting news for you. I'm not going to get into any detail here because I want them to uh, have the joy of sharing their own testimony. But not too long from now, if you, you know, a matter of weeks away or uh, however long it is before we can gather together again at Woodland, uh, we're going to have a baptism of someone who's been joining us for quite some time, uh, who's been hearing the gospel and hearing about Jesus, who has been drawn by his power. You're going to hear them share their testimony of how they've come to faith in Jesus Christ uh, in COVID. Uh, while we're in this broken hallelujah, not able to gather live, just I, let this sink in. Let this sink in. I want, I, and I, I want you to consider all of the frustrating things that we hear um, today. Oh my goodness, we're grieved. We, we, we can't gather live. Jesus says, no problem. Oh my goodness, we can't hear one another sing. We miss the corporate sound of us joining our voices. When will we ever? And Jesus says, no problem. No live services, no problem. No corporate singing, no problem. Jesus Christ, the one who filled those nets, continues to fill his church, continues to fill hearts. And not too long from now, Redeemer, we're going to baptize someone who came to faith in Christ because he's still doing this today. And none of these things can stop uh, the work of the gospel. They simply haven't. Uh, none of these things that we're going through in these times uh, can stop uh, the mission of Christ's church and uh, his power. Nothing stops it. It's amazing. And so this end scene here with the disciples, it reminds us of the opening scene, doesn't it? Of how he calls them. Uh, he found his disciples fishing. He says, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. And then in verses 10 and 11, uh, Jesus asks for some fish and Peter brings the fish to Jesus, right? Now remember, the only reason the fish are there is by the power of Jesus. And you know, 50 days later after this account, about 50 days later in Acts chapter two, you're gonna find the same Peter bringing thousands and thousands of people to Jesus by the power of Jesus, right? Peter's days of fishing uh, for fish, you know, they're coming to a close. In his days for fishing for people, um, they're beginning, and I want you to consider the significance of this amazing metaphor of Jesus calling us to be fishers of men, of what he's doing here by bringing in the fish, by his power. You know, in the ancient world, they lived by symbols, and the sea was a symbol of chaos and, and uh, unbridled dark power. Uh, it, it was a symbol even of death because a storm could come up without warning and kill you and your entire crew. It was just this chaotic unbridled power um, of potential darkness and death. And so Jesus uses this metaphor of fishing to talk about drawing people out of one realm and into another, right? Colossians 1 talks about the fishing this way. He says, God has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought, him into, brought us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. And so you consider this fishing metaphor, all of us, church, you and I, uh, this new believer among us who we're going to baptize in the near future, right? We've all been drawn by God's grace out of the waters of our sin-driven, me-first, I'm-the-king life, drawn out of all of that, brought into his kingdom to be empowered to live a gospel-driven, outward-facing, Christ-is-my-king life. And because Christ is our king, and because we love our king, there's this deep, life-changing desire uh, to imitate our king. 
And that is why, in a shocking contradiction of what our culture cries for, we as Christians ought to be able to, because we are empowered to be able to, lay our lives down, give our lives away, sacrifice our comforts for others, sacrifice our desires for others. Because quite simply, friends, we believe at the core that this life is not all that there is, that there will be a glorious restoration. And so we can quite frankly afford to live lives of great sacrifice. In order to do that radical thing, you've got to, you've got to be pulled out of some waters into some new water so that your heart and mind is recalibrated around a cross-shaped life. You know, we are no longer moved and motivated and defined by all the things uh, that, we, that we were when we lived uh, according to, you know, the ways, the ideologies, the loves of the world, right? We don't need the culture to tell us who we are and we don't need to curate our own identity. We have an identity and it's that we are his, it's that we are Christ, it's that we are his children, it's that we are loved. And this is our message. So don't waste a good crisis, you know, the world is, our province is in crisis, our city is in crisis, everybody's freaking out, everybody's anxious, and we don't need to be just an echo regurgitating and, and stewing and spewing the same thing everybody else is saying. Uh, you don't tune in on Sunday mornings for me to give you Paul Dunk's update on what he thinks about COVID, Paul Dunk's update on what he thinks about the government. Let me just throw some scripture verses in there and that's your sermon on Sunday morning. That's not why we're here. That's not our message. That's not the message of my life. That's not the message of your life. It is when we have been drawn out of the waters of this world and we now live in the, in the waters of Christ's love and grace that we live in newness of life. There's just tremendous power here as we consider these things. And so when we look at the way that Jesus engaged um, with community, it puts this whole business of coming out of darkness and into light, it just puts it on the ground in a very, very practical way. Because the way Jesus engaged in community is how is his vision for his church, his family community, and of course how we would then relate to the greater uh, community, right? There's no racial or, or gender uh, superiority. And he just loved and cared for men and women the same. He gave women dignity that was unprecedented, of course, in the ancient world. He gave children attention at a time when there was very little attention given to children. Uh, he was, he was a, a friend of, of Jew and Gentile. He did not relate to people uh, with judgment according to their socioeconomic status. He was having lunch with prostitutes and tax collectors and social outcasts. When you look at what Jesus was doing, we, it puts this business of being fished out of waters on the ground in a very um, practical and beautiful way. It looks like love and care. And so once Jesus hauls us out of the waters of our old life by his grace, he begins life going, you know, renewal by that same grace. And so this same Jesus who filled those nets, he fills his church and he fills our hearts, right? Yes, he fills his church numerically, but I want you to think about how he fills you, you know, in uh, psychologically, in your soul, soulically, how he fills you. Yes, there are billions of Christians around the world today. There's not many, many of us in North America, so you know, uh, we're we're tremendously frustrated because there's not many of us, and uh, we've been used, at least in our entire lifetime, we've been used to things that have sort of favored a Christian worldview, and those days have been, you know, the days of uh, sort of a Christian worldview being in the water of our culture have been diminished over the last few decades, and so for us, it's unsettling. But globally, you cross the pond, and there's billions of Christians over there who've who've never had the majority, who've never had the government legislate things. Uh, conducive to their worldview. And, and so Christ has been filling his church, 
numerically, of course, but I want you to think now deeply about how he fills you uh, in your soul in a way that matters on Monday um, in these difficult days uh, that we're living that we're living in. And you find this picture of how he fills you, you know, deeply. Um, Right at the very end of this passage. It's like right at the end of the end credit scene. Uh, it's like John takes his text and it's like a camera panning down to avert everybody's gaze. And we're looking down on this fire of coals as he redirects our focus. There's these fish. There's fish and bread cooking on this fire of coals. And so Jesus is, you know, establishing the fish and chips dinner here. And as he's doing this... Um, we see, wow, there's like this beautiful restoration that's about to happen with Peter. I know that for many of you, this isn't new. So just marinate in it a little bit. For some of you, it is new. Now watch this carefully. Um, fire, the word fire shows up in the Bible like 550 times. And, um, but this particular fire, uh, the Greek word is anthrakia. And the anthrakia is only mentioned twice. So what's, what's amazing about it is that in the fi- over 500 you know, times that fire is mentioned, there's this little phrase it's only used twice the first time it's when christ is being crucified and peter is warming himself by a fire he's warming warming himself by an entrechia and as he is warming himself there he denies jesus three times and here jesus resets the scene at the entrechia and um he restores peter three times and uh it's profound as you consider the lengths that jesus went to 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 fill and to heal and I want you to consider how he can do this healing for your grief uh, right here, even in these difficult days that we're in right now. At a fire of coals, Peter said, I don't belong to him. And at a fire of coals, Jesus said, yes, but sit and eat because you belong to me. Right? Jesus resets this scene so that Peter's failure can be met with forgiveness. Three times he asks him, right? Repetitive, intentional. Do you love me? Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Feed my sheep, feed my lambs. He's healing his grief. The text says that Peter was grieved, but you know, he's being restored. What Peter thought was going to be a routine night full of work, it ended up being a restorative morning full of grace. And so Jesus says in verse 12, he says, come and eat. And to eat with Jesus, it's a massive New Testament theme. Eating with Jesus is a huge, strong New Testament theme. Because if you were eating with Jesus, that meant you were embraced by Jesus. That meant you were you were loved and welcomed in by Jesus. The religious who's who's did not approve of Jesus' dinner guests ever. He's eaten with prostitutes and thieves and outcasts. He's drawing them in, giving them this undeserved grace and love. Jesus, the friend of sinners, which by the way is all of us. Amazing. To eat with Jesus is to encounter his love to receive healing from his grace. It's to be revived by his comfort. It's to be filled with his strength. My friends, turn to him daily. My friends, turn to him on Monday. Turn to him every day. Carve some time out. Turn to the one who filled these nets. He will fill your heart. In these weary days of lockdown, do not allowed Netflix or the bottle of wine or the Amazon packages showing on your... Do not allow these things to babysit you and be these tiny little comforts to sort of get you through the hump. Turn to the one. Turn to the one who will fill you. And you will encounter his love. 
you will find healing from his strength. You will be revived by his comfort. You will be rejuvenated in his strength. May the same Jesus who filled these nets fill your hearts. Let's pray.